0: You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show.
1: This is The Matt Townsend Show.
0: If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. Your guide on the side. I would suggest you forge more character. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. It's not easy. And uh, if you've ever... I mean, it's. can you imagine trying to stay healthy, just do what you've got to do to stay healthy? But what about... Uh, living in a city where they make it even harder to stay healthy. And you may not even recognize that, like uh, the the data showed that in Massachusetts, one in uh, there's 547 physicians for every 100,000 people. And in the South, in those five states that are struggling in the South, there's 87 physicians for every 100,000 people. It's crazy. And so at some point, it's not enough to just only tell people, you know, you just got to be disciplined. Well, you can be the disciplined one in those areas. You totally can be, by the way. Um, but uh, there are some things that, that we all need to do to, be, to exercise a little more discipline in our own life. So think about your life. Where do you need to pick up a little bit more discipline? Where do you need to really get your act together a little bit more? And I want you to have an idea in your head because whether it's just watching less Netflix, exercising more, um, spending more time with your family, being disciplined to put your phone away, those are all things that each and every one of us could uh, and probably should be doing, right? Um, One of the things we we might want to do too is to um, choose to focus our firepower. One of the things I found is if I keep trying to do everything and be disciplined everywhere, I mean discipline is a limited reserve. You have so much uh, energy and ability in you to do something, and some of the research shows that the, the later in the day, the harder and harder it gets for people to actually exercise more and more discipline. It might be easier, especially if you spend an entire day having to be disciplined, not getting mad at people, not being you know angry, not having blow ups, not eating that really good lunch. If you've been exercising discipline all day, you might know you might notice that the later it gets in the day, the harder this gets so uh instead of having five different things that every day you're trying to exercise your discipline on, what if we could just try to become more disciplined on one thing? a day. Let's try to just use as much of our firepower as we can on that one thing. And sometimes if you may have noticed that like when you're using a garden hose, um, you put your thumb over the end of the hose and you kind of restrict it a little bit. And by restricting the hose, you can actually create a stronger stream and a more directed focus stream. That's that's kind of what we need to do. Is there's power in restricting a little bit and focusing our, our uh, discipline to be able to handle something um, and and to be able to take it on a little bit more in a focused way you're listening to the best of the matt townsend show there's a great book by greg mckeon called essentialism another book by sean acor called the um, happiness advantage both are great books that have, that are now sharing all of the research about how to use uh, how to create positive psychology in your life how to be happier sean acor talks about a rule called the 22nd rule in his book the happiness advantage And that rule basically uh, helps, you know, people that waste time get out of it. They call it activation energy. You know, it takes energy to get a project or an activity started. It's just that little spark that everyone needs to have. But you don't need to always have a ton more discipline to do it. You just need to decrease the amount of activation energy that is required to start a task. Right. So if I, for example, um. If I like watching television at night and I'm trying to stop watching television, then I need to increase the energy it would take me to watch television. So an example that Sean Acor gives is, well, what you ought to do is go put your remote control upstairs in your bedroom um, so and or the batteries upstairs in the bedroom and the remote control in your office. So if you want to watch TV, you now have to get up, walk to your office, Go all the way upstairs, get your batteries, and then put your batteries in and then come back down and watch TV. And because that's so much activation energy, you're probably less likely to do it. And the reverse is true. If you want to get something done and make sure you are accomplishing tasks easier, then you've got to figure out a way to get that activity started and going within 20 seconds. So if you wanted to watch more TV, right, then you'd want to have the remote right near you as close as you can, as easy as you can. You'd want to spend all the energy to get your four remotes converted into one universal remote. Bada boom, bada ping, you're done. So that is called the 20-second rule. And um, you don't necessarily need a ton more discipline to do that. You do just need to make sure that we are focused and doing and making the, the, what seemingly is difficult, make it a little easier to do. Uh, another thing you could do is make sure that you have routines and rely heavily on your disciplined routines. So make traditions, make habits. If you want to make it easier to run in the morning, make sure that you have a routine of having your shoes right by your bed. Maybe even go to bed and sleep in your jogging or your running clothes that you will be running in tomorrow. And then make a routine of how you're going to get up and once you've kind of turned it into a habit or a routine or a pattern, you don't need to think about it every day. It's going to – the pattern itself will operate on you. You can also evaluate your routines regularly and and make stuff happen. There are ways, folks, that we – each and every one of us can become a lot more disciplined if that's what we're seeking after and um, or we can sit back and just keep saying it's hard. It's really hard and keep telling the story of how hard it is to exercise discipline, how hard it is to, uh, to do and be what you need to be. It's uh, – again, and I'm this isn't coming from a guy that is a seriously disciplined person. But I, I do have habits. I do have patterns. I do have routines. And when I start to realize that all I need is about 20 seconds to get something going – Another thing is you don't even need to focus on doing the biggest thing. You could go choose what's the smallest thing I can do today to start to move my body more and exercise more. What's the least thing I can do? And if you would just go do that least thing, you would actually probably be more inclined to do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So again, it doesn't have to be the biggest things in the world. Sometimes it just has to be anything And that's uh, one of the fastest keys, I think, for any of us to get uh, a little bit more disciplined. Uh, Again, the two books are um, Essentialism by Greg McKeon and um, The Happiness Advantage by Sean A.
2: You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show.
0: You know, we know to take care of ourselves from the sun, right? Now we know. We've learned from Dr. Myers what we need to do. Cover up, right? But... What do you do if uh, the, the potential cancer-causing entity is your spouse? Have you ever met somebody that was so negative? Ugh. You just felt like they were just killing you. So negativity, it's a big deal. And I believe a lot of us that are negative, we don't even know we are. So I'm going to run you through a quick test. Are you a negative person? Fifteen signs of negative people that was put together by Robert Locke on uh, the website lifehack.org. Fifteen signs that you, uh, you're, you're a negative person. Are you ready? And run through and think it through. Because uh, the research actually shows that in order to erase a, um, a negative, you need four positives to erase a negative. So you might be causing emotional cancer to the people around you. You're like the sun, just slowly burning people. Here we go. Negative people always worry. Do you voice a lot of your worries? Uh, Anna Monar said, whatever's going to happen will happen, whether we worry about it or not. But the negative person is constantly worrying about what might happen. What about this? What about this? What about this? Okay. Do you tend to worry a lot? Do you try to tell people what to do? Are you bossy? Are you trying to, like, maneuver the world so that, you know, you get the world in the nice, simple package you'd like it? Negative people tend to try to push their agendas pretty hard. They also live in a default position. The default position is simply, you know, it's better to assume the worst, right? Negative, it kind of goes back to our fight-or-flight brain, which is an alarm system. And so if you always predict and your default is always to be negative, then the fight or flight always works for you. You know, you should try to avoid those people. You should leave the party early. You should notice how boring and unfun it is so you don't risk, right? Do you tend to live in the negative default position? Is everything end up going there? Do you enjoy secrecy? Do you have a lot of secrets, private things that you don't let out into the world? You don't show a lot of good stuff because, you know, you don't want people to, Beat it down. Negative people tend to enjoy a lot of secrets. They tend to be pessimistic, obviously. They're uh, they're more happy predicting a bad thing happening. For example, oh, it's going to be bad. It's going to be cloudy. Sure, it's we're on the way to the beach and it's going to be cloudy. Never mind the fact the last three days that it, you started with clouds. They always kind of dissipated. You didn't notice that. You just notice that the clouds are going to ruin your day. Negative people tend to limit their exposure uh, uh, to life, you know, so they hide away. They have very, very thin skin. If you say something to a negative person, they might blow up very quickly. If you blow up quickly, maybe you are a negative person. Research has shown that media exposure to violence, death, and tragedy contributes to depression, anxiety, anxiety, As well as post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, it colors the negative person's outlook on life. Negative people love coming into your cubicle and saying things like, have you heard the terrible news about, did you see this crazy situation where people were killed? And uh, No, I didn't, but thanks for sharing it. Uh, Negative people tend to complain a lot. Are you a complainer? Do you complain about life, your energy, whatever? how horrible things are, politics, negative people never move outside their comfort zone. They don't want to do anything that's not fun, that's not easy, that makes them move, that it demands some energy or some some movement. Are you one that just stays in your comfort zone? If you can't go to your restaurant, do you throw a fit? If you can't order what you want because they're out of it, do you get mad? Negative people uh, love the word but. Yeah, it's great, but, and then they share the negative side. Again, we're talking about the 15 signs negative people of negative people by Robert Locke on lifehack.org. They love to throw that but in there. Yeah, sure, life's great now, but, you know, school starts in a month. Yeah, it's great now, but, you know, the economy, who knows if it's going to work you use that mentality a lot? Uh, negative people tend to be underachievers. That lack of success you know, might be there because they're negative, but it also might simply be there because it's a technique to not ever have to risk, to not ever be exposed, to not ever have to reach out and be something better. Uh, negative people never get excited about the future. They tend to mitigate the future. They minimize its potential. You know, it's better to stay in the dark, stay in the dark tum- tunnel. But you also, negative uh, people, you could become a vampire, really sucking attention and time and focus and energy out of the people around you. One of the best ways to know if you're a negative person is is, is it hard for you to find people to hang out with? Do people avoid you like the plague? It's kind of scary. If you're a vampire, you might be because a lot of people don't want to be around you, right? You're too hard to deal with. Negative people miss out on a lot of good things of life. You might notice the very most positive moments of life. They're not there. They've kind of hidden away. Do you notice you're missing your most important moments of life? I'm going to go to the store right now in the middle of your family's party. Yeah, I got to run and get that barbecue sauce. Okay, because we got to have barbecue sauce right now. Last but not least, negative people uh, tend to put a negative spin even on good news. Well, sure, she's cancer-free now, but, you know, it could come back. Wow. Great. Are you a negative person? Because if you are, guess what? You you, you might be taking it out on the people around you. And if you are with somebody that's negative, remember that whatever they're spewing is more a reflection of them than you. This isn't – this is them. This is not you. And just because they're spewing it doesn't mean you need to take it. So one of the things you might want to just watch out for is very simply don't turn over your self-worth, your self-identity to the most negative person in the room. Don't let them lead your emotion. Even point it out. Oh, there you go again. Laugh at it. Make fun. Have fun with it. Talk to them about it and still be positive. The benefit of just being positive is you're going to feel better, even if everybody else – You know, if this other person is going to feel negative, they can feel that. But that doesn't mean it has to influence you that way. Negative people, folks, it's a big cancer. And uh, I don't want you to just, you know, be naively happy. But I do want you to own your own identity, your own sense of happiness, your own sense of worth. That's the coach's corner, folks. Don't be a negative Nelly. Come on. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. If you didn't get a chance to see it, uh, the funeral of Barbara Bush was really an amazing Amazing thing, especially in – when you watch the present world of uh, politics, you can't quite see how any of these people can get along. And then at a funeral, you see sitting there the Carters, uh, George Bush and his wife, the Clintons, um, the Obamas, and Melania Trump is there. And you just think, wow. I mean each one of these dynasties have fought against each other. Each one of them – you know did everything they could to take each other out and yet they sit there and uh show this incredible force of um of positivity of goodness some of it though i think was just barbara bush i think she was uh, an amazing person married one you know married one man had and the and basically the only man she's ever kissed um it's it's really a beautiful love story to find out how much that that they loved each other. Uh, some of the history I think we're going to find out. They were saying that Barbara Bush um, always seemed to like be taking kind of the backseat, always being quiet and 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 uh, and kind of hiding away a little bit, but really uh, very involved in some some pretty major um, decisions in the White House with both herself and her son. Um, so. It, there is incredible power in uh, in the people in our lives, and when you have a dynasty like the Bush dynasty, it couldn't have happened. And everybody said it without a mother and a and a person like Barbara Bush, very straightforward, very direct. Um, she said, though, a couple quotes from Barbara Bush: "Never lose sight of the fact that the most important yardstick of your success will be how you treat other people, your family, friends, and coworkers, and even strangers." that you meet along the way. They were telling a story about um, uh, a – because she was big into literacy, big into reading and and helping um, the reading and and literacy movement. She was talking about an American who was um, coming in. They were doing an event where uh, a person who had just learned to read would actually get up in a big meeting, and um, he would read the Constitution of the United States. And uh, he got there, and he was a little weirded out. He was a little afraid to have to get up there because he just barely learned to read. So Barbara Bush got up and actually asked if he could, she could read it with him. And she got up and started reading, and he would read with her, and together they were reading it. And then paragraph by paragraph, Barbara Bush just stopped reading. And then at the very end, you could see this beaming gentleman who was reading and and reading all on his own, um, basically because of some of the decisions and positions she had taken on reading, uh, and then saw a man in need and went up and helped him get through a very difficult time. So how powerful is that example? Uh, another quote is, if human beings are perceived as potentials rather than problems, as possessing strengths instead of weaknesses, as unlimited rather than, than dull and unresponsive, then they thrive and they grow to their capabilities. They thrive and they grow in their capabilities. Powerful examples. One more quote. Believe in something larger than yourself. Get involved in the big ideas of your time. Great uh, great role model. I think for all of us, great role model for being uh, a strong progressive mother uh, and a progressive wife, um and and having a voice powerful powerful example i think to all of us and uh, i think we're grateful and and uh i'm appreciative as just a citizen for having examples like that out there in this uh, crazy culture that we now live in this is the matt townsend show helping you live longer love stronger and be more disciplined Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. McDonald's is making national news. They are planning to remove artificial preservatives from their chicken nuggets. Subway, Dunkin' Donuts, and Taco Bell are following suit. They're removing artificial items from their food as well. But as bad as fast food is, the grocery store, believe it or not, may be worse. A high-end restaurant, in fact, may be even worse. Everything you love from cheese to olive oil, sushi, and honey could be and probably is fake, according to our next guest. Larry Olmstead uh, joins us to discuss his book, An Exposé on the Food Industry. The name of the book is Real Food, Fake Food, Why You Don't Know What You're Eating and What You Can Do About It. Larry Olmstead, well, welcome to The Matt Townsend Show.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: Great to have you. What an interesting uh discovery you've made here. I guess it should be better known to all of us, and I guess that's the purpose of your book, is to get this information out there.
3: Uh, absolutely. Um, and I and I should say that, you know, there is lots of great real food. That's why I, I called it real food, fake food. Um, you know, it's not that everything we eat is fake. It's that every category has uh, some degree of fraud, and people just need to be aware so they can avoid it. I wasn't I trying to scare people right. off of food. I was trying to lead them to the good stuff.
0: <laughs> and, like, you make a really good point about just an example, like Kobe steak. Um, it's there, There's more to it than just getting, like, the best cut of meat ever. What we're also missing by having fake food is is just great experiences with taste and flavor.
3: Uh, and and sometimes health i mean there's there's really four levels on which this operates one is you get uh economically defrauded you pay for something that's an expensive product like kobe beef the most pretty much the most expensive beef in the world and you don't get it so you're getting ripped off secondly in the case of kobe beef for example the real thing they're not allowed to use any antibiotics or steroids or hormones in raising that meat which is widely done in the US so when you get you know a domestic imitation suddenly uh, maybe it's less healthy than you thought it would be. Uh, in some of these cases, the foods you get are actually unhealthy, which would be the third level. Uh, and then you're, you're the artisanal cheese, uh, food makers behind these cheeses and oils and meats and whatever it is here and abroad are being defrauded. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of different things going on when we buy fake food.
0: Mm. And and yet you think you're having you think you're you think you're having a great meal and I, I guess it's it's satisfying and if it's not making you sick but still there's the fraud behind it that we think we're getting one thing but we're actually getting
3: another. True, and some of it is making us sick. And you know, you say you have a satisfying meal, but one of the things I've seen is one of the it's, it's very common uh, to be able to fool people in areas with which they are not familiar. So very few Americans have ever tried uh, real Japanese Wagyu or real truffles or a lot of these kind of more rarefied foods or even really good olive oil. So it's very easy to serve you um, things that are pale imitations when you don't know what the real thing tastes hmm. like. Yeah. And, you know, as far as the, the, the making you sick, a good example, um, sushi, a very frequent substitute in sushi restaurants for tuna is a fish called Escalar. And its nickname in the seafood industry is the "x-lax" of the sea. It gives a lot of people stomach distress. Oh, wow! Widely known, and people eat sushi, and if they don't feel well the next day, they say, "Oh, I must have had bad tuna." But the reality is, they never had tuna at all, and that's why they're sick.
0: Mm. And we think, well, yeah, but come on, Larry, that's just at the really low-end tuna or the low-end sushi bars and sushi places, right?
3: Well, for the most part, with sushi, yes, um, it is more limited. The higher-end places uh, get much better fish and are less likely to fraud you, but that's not true of all restaurants. A lot of the the, uh, other fraud that I talk about, from the Kobe beef to other kinds of seafood substitution, Red Snapper, for instance... Is the most widely substituted species of fish in the United States. In one national study, restaurants and retail, 94% of the time people ordered if they did not get red snapper. And that's not a fish that really shows up as an entree at low end restaurants. Right. Um, You know, so this is a problem across the price board.
0: 94% of the time when you order red snapper, you're not getting red snapper.
3: Yeah, I mean, here's the crazy thing, right? I went all around the world trying some of these, uh, you know, delicious foods. I had Kobe beef in Japan. I've had Kobe beef in the U.S., but um, I don't know if I've ever had red snapper. The fraud is so prevalent. Um, <laughs> the only way I would know is, you know, next time I go to the Caribbean or Mexico or someplace where I can get a whole fish at the beach, I'm going to do that to try it because you just can't trust the restaurant.
0: And uh, I mean, again, we we always joke about the fact that we live in Utah, not not a lot of uh, not a lot of oceanfront property here. And yet, you're eating you're eating salmon, but you really may not be eating salmon if you're not careful.
3: Well, salmon is a little more recognizable. Most of the the substitution is with your whitefish species because you know Americans are kind of detached from where their food comes from. Very few of us, including myself you know fish for our own fish or buy whole fish so when you get a white fish fillet um, you could put a fillet of tilapia and grouper and red snapper next to each other on a counter and almost no one could tell them apart salmon is a little bit more recognizable because of its color the problem with salmon is um, american consumers consistently have demonstrated a preference for wild caught salmon over farm they're willing to pay more for it but as a result of that, and you can't tell them apart from each other, um, farm salmon is often passed off as wild-caught, both in stores and restaurants. One Consumer Reports study went to supermarkets and bought what was labeled wild-caught salmon and more than half of it was not.
0: Oh, wow. So, And I guess this is for... this is just to get more money.
3: Oh yeah, I mean, it's all greed across the board and some of it, you know, is, is fairly small-scale, you know, um, uh, when, when the Boston Globe did a big investigation of seafood fraud in New England they talked to one sushi place and they said how can you serve tilapia and say it's red snapper on the menu and the manager said basically um, we're not trying to fool anyone it's it's just what everyone does it's business as usual and it's that pervasive and there you know that mom-and-pop restaurant is making a little more money but some of this is much more um, on the scale of organized crime. And some of the scientists that I talked to said, you know, it's, it's basically just like drug dealing, except if you get caught, there's very little chance you're going to go to jail. So you've got big margins and there's rings that, you know, import the, the largest um, prosecuted food fraud case ever in the history of the United States was an organized ring that was importing banned honey from China. They were shipping it to third-party countries along the way, relabeling it as originating there to sort of disguise its place of origin. This honey had both banned antibiotics that are known to be dangerous and it was cut with corn sugar. And over six years, they imported $80 million worth of this honey. So this is not like a small-scale thing.
0: And and we've heard of... uh... Um, the the rings and the kind of the, I don't know what you'd call it, I guess, just the underground extra, or the olive oil, you know, mafias that, that exist out there as well. Talk about what's happening with olive oil and the extra virgin olive oil. When you think you're buying that, what are you really buying?
3: Well, the organized crime, I don't think it is involved in this country. In Italy, they have a lot of problems with it. Our problem is more just um, that, you know, I think there's been a dumbing down of the label. So extra virgin is supposed to represent the highest grade of quality available in olive oil. Just like when you go to the uh, uh, gas station, they have regular premium and ultra premium. So extra virgin is supposed to be ultra premium olive oil. And a couple of producers I talked to in Europe est- or experts estimated that maybe 8 to 10% of olive oil would qualify as extra virgin. But in this country, it's virtually impossible to buy a bottle that isn't labeled extra virgin. It's like grade inflation. So <laughs> the yeah, University of California Davis did a test of supermarket olive oils and found that 69% of those labeled um, uh, extra virgin did not qualify for the legal standard for extra virgin. 60 Minutes, Consumer Reports, there's been other studies, all come out with around the same numbers. Um, so It's not. It's usually. uh, It used to be that there were problems with adulteration. They would cut olive oil with cheaper oils like uh, soybean oil, peanut oil, whatever. But testing has gotten a little bit better. So more often than not, it's just a lower grade. It's just not. It might be olive oil, but it's not as good as it should be. And. I get really good olive oil. I love olive oil. It's, it's one of my favorite foods. And when you taste the really good stuff, you can never go back to eating cheap olive oil again.
0: Yeah, you say it It tastes. It tastes old. It tastes
3: like moldy. It's yeah. Flavorless. Yeah. Mean, it's Supposed to be a fairly strong. Um, I mean one of the one of the chefs that I talked to said, you know, it's the taste of sunshine caught in liquid. You know, it tastes <laughs> like freshness and brightness and. Um, uh, so you know, and I, again, I'm not trying to scare people off of olive oil. I, it, it's it's inc- the good stuff is really healthy. It's um it's got all kinds of positive properties. It's delicious. It makes. Other foods taste good. I do like the Italians do. I pour it on top of my steak, which is kind of unheard of in this country. You know, people use ketchup or A1. But, you know, it's that good when it's good. Uh, I I did a book signing in Ann Arbor last week where I had um, a specialty store do an olive oil tasting at the book signing. And I saw these people's eyes light up. You know, person after person was like, I've never tasted anything like this.
0: Oh, that's great. Again, and we're missing so much just by only, I guess, by not being informed, which is really the purpose of your book.
3: Exactly. I mean, at the end of every chapter, I give shopping tips, label tips, things to look for. And, you know, again and again, I've seen this just in a few weeks since my book came out. I also did a cheese tasting at one of my signings where, you know, once you taste the real thing, you, you don't have to worry as much about the labeling because you know what it tastes like. You can't be. The problem is most of us don't know what it tastes like the first time. And truffle oil is a great example of that. You know, it's become ubiquitous in sort of mid level neighborhood restaurants that want to fancy up the menu, truffle fries, truffle mashed potatoes, even truffle popcorn. This has nothing to do with actual truffles, (laughs) yet we have a whole generation of Americans who are being raised thinking that the, the taste of this synthetic perfume oil substance made in a lab with no truffle in it is what truffles taste like. Uh, it's not, but people don't know that because truffles are pretty rare and expensive. Right, right. Man,
0: fascinating. Let's take a break. We'll come back. We're going to continue the discussion with Larry Olmsted on his book, Real Food, Fake Food. Why you don't know what you're eating and what you can do about it. Stick with us, folks. We're helping you open your eyes a bit when it comes to uh, your food. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Today, we are talking about real food, fake food, a book written by Larry Olmstead about uh, why you don't know what you're eating and what you can do about it. And uh, Larry's on the line with us, walking us through uh, some of the ways that we've been scammed in our in our food chain. And, you know, he's not here to scare us. He's here to educate us. But, but this is a pretty... I mean, this is... This does amount to health sometimes. This this can end up killing or, I mean, harming you. If if something is laced with peanut oil when you think it's olive oil, it could be a problem, couldn't it, Larry?
3: It could. Um, I think most of the problems I've seen are, are longer term where you were maybe ingesting um, uh, uh, something that's a potential carcinogen over a long time. It's not the kind of thing that's going to make you sick the next day. But, you know, definitely we've seen a lot of long-term health issues in this country tied to our food production. And probably, you know, the, the biggest is uh, the, the issue right now is these um, antibiotic-resistant uh, superbugs, which is, you know, a very real problem. It is killing people. It's costing a lot of money, and uh, scientists are scrambling to you know, to create new antibiotics, and and one of the reasons we have this issue is because 80 percent of the antibiotics produced in this country go directly into animal feed. Uh, So you know, I personally try to buy meat that is drug-free, whether it's pork or chicken or beef or seafood, and because of the way um, a lot of this food is labeled and sold, both retail and restaurants, that's not always as easy as it should be.
0: Man. Well, what about the argument – well, the government's on this, Larry. The the government's, they're cracking down on stuff.
3: Uh, The government is is most definitely not on this. Uh, I will say that, um, I mean, the problem got so bad with seafood that in in 2014, President Obama had to um, use a presidential memo to uh, set up a task force to combat seafood fraud. And, you know, if you think about that, you know, that that means there's a pretty big problem with, with seafood when the president has to step in and... As a result of that, those recommendations are sort of coming out right now, and FDA is is apparently stepping up its policing of seafood, which was which was really bad. Um, so you know, it, there's a little bit of a bright light at the end of that particular tunnel, but a lot of these areas there is none. And, and one example that you know it's talked about a lot in the press is just the word natural. The FDA has chosen, you know, it's not an oversight. They've met about this, talked about it, had public hearings, and chosen not to make a definition for the word natural. So as a result, producers of all kinds of things can use it any way they want because there's no definition. You can't say it's wrong. And I think it's uh, one out of every four new food products introduced in supermarkets last year in all categories had the word natural on it. Oh, wow. And you can't really blame people for, like, if they look at chicken and natural chicken, wanting to pay 20 cents more a pound for natural. Natural chicken but it doesn't mean anything
0: yeah I mean it it is natural to plump up your chicken with hormones that seems natural (laughs) it's like you can 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 make the argument unnatural so many ways (laughs) it it, so it's almost like you're saying Larry we can't fully trust you can't trust the label um, or or even what they're saying in the label uh, so who do we trust
3: Well, I mean, you can trust some labels. The problem is the onus on the consumer to know so many things. Here's a good example is grass-fed. A lot more people want to eat grass-fed beef now since the Omnivore's Dilemma and some of these books. So the USDA, which actually does a pretty good job of enforcing its labels, does not define the term grass-fed, but they do define the term 100% grass-fed. So now you as the consumer have to memorize this, and you have to go to a supermarket and say, oh, grass-fed, that means nothing, but I can buy 100% grass-fed because that's what I want. And that would be fine maybe if that was the only label in existence, but there's hundreds of these terms, uh, humane-fed, green-fed, free-ranging, uh, none of which mean anything. So you have to now memorize these lists, and then you have to memorize well who labels this particular food. Is this the FDA or the USDA? So it becomes um, kind of unwieldy for the consumer.
0: And why aren't they why aren't they you know finalizing this? Why aren't they making the the steps to better define these
3: terms? Uh, I, it, I don't know. It's been an issue forever. I mean, for the big one, used to be organic. It took decades of of uh hearings and public outcry used to be completely undefined and and when interest in healthier foods rose producers started slapping our organic on everything because they could because it didn't mean anything. The USDA finally defined organic I think in 2002, but natural and a lot of these other terms are sort of the next shoe to drop.
0: Wow. Is um I I guess I can also probably trust brands, right? Uh, it seems like I mean in in the article you mentioned um you, you know if i want scottish scotch that's a the scots are going to make sure their scotch is good
3: <laughs> well i gave i use scotch as an example of how real foods should be protected so For whatever, as a nation, we have long taken a stand against what are called geographically indicated foods, which are foods associated with a place. So it's legal in this country to make domestic versions of things like champagne and Kobe beef and Parmesan cheese, which comes from Parma, Italy. Champagne is a real shocker to most people. Everybody says, oh, champagne can only be made in France and it should be that way, but it's not. You can make it in upstate New York and and lots of people do. Um, Scotch, for some reason, is the one product that our country took a stand on and literally an act of Congress to protect scotch as uh, a drink that can only originate in Scotland under uh, made under Scottish law. So it's like one thing I say, hey, go buy scotch in this country. You'll be absolutely fine. You'll get what you expect huh. and drink that while you read my book.
0: Wow, well, that's right. It's, so so. there is, I mean, geographically, I guess these people want to protect what is their namesake, their their brand.
3: Well, absolutely, just like we want to protect uh, software made by Microsoft and movies made by Hollywood and you know music. So we take as a country very aggressive stance on intellectual property except when it comes to other people's,
0: yeah. and another thing you mentioned, and tell me if this is okay do i do i trust do I trust my stores to differentiate for me? Should I trust that a Costco and a Walmart, are going to make sure that I'm getting what they say I'm getting?
3: Well, the big box stores, much to the surprise of a lot of readers, do a really good job on things that involve um, sort of labeling specifics. So Walmart now is the single largest seller of of real organic produce in the United States, if not the world. uh, with seafood, one of the things I recommend is looking for these third-party certifications like the Marine Stewardship Council or the Global Aquaculture um, uh I, I forget what the third third word is, but, um, you know, they have these seals that uh, that sort of guarantee where your seafood is coming from. And the big box stores have been aggressive about buying from distributors that have better chain of custody control and use these seals. So for some products, they are really good. Um, for seafood, I like whole foods as well. But with other products like the cheeses, it's all over the board. Most mm-hmm. of these stores sell what I would consider the real and the fake version side by side.
0: So we need to stay educated. Uh and really, I mean, be become a, a real shopper, become a become, I guess, a connoisseur, somebody that can 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 take it a lot deeper and, and be more um, I guess, conversant in it. Anything else we can do that would make a big difference in in having real food instead of just the fakes?
3: Well the biggest, you know, the categories are kind of complex and different, but the big general tip that I can give is you're always better off buying the food in in like the wholest form you can and I I use the example of a Maine Lobster you buy a Maine Lobster you know exactly what you're getting they can't fool you it looks like a lobster you buy lobster ravioli and in some cases it contains no lobster once it's chopped up once you can't see it same with coffee you buy whole bean coffee you know you're getting coffee you buy ground coffee it's got centuries-long history of adulteration so try to buy the food in a recognizable form that you can't be fooled by
0: Hmm. There you go. Well, it's great uh, I think it's great work Larry. It's it, you can tell you're obviously passionate about it and it's you've put it in a nice concise way that we can just go eat it up. Anything else we need to know? Anything I always call it the one thing as we wrap it up what would you say is the one thing that makes the biggest difference to uh, to have the the real foods?
3: I think just um you know i say in the book real foods come from real places and there's a reason why certain foods are really associated with places so if you buy you know parmesan cheese from parma italy and taste it you can buy it at almost any supermarket in the u.s it's so much better than the copies of of parmesan cheese made in other places you won't want to buy them again and it's like that for a lot of foods
0: yeah it's so true and then and you might even want to go there get the real story taste the real stuff Larry Olmstead, thank you so much. Great uh, luck with your book, Real Food, Fake Food, Why You Don't Know What You're Eating and What You Can Do About It. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Everybody go check out the website as well, uh, realfoodfakefood.com. Great uh, resources with with some background as well on uh, on all of his research, some cited uh, sources there so you can get a deeper cut. We'll take a break come back, wrap up this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. And by the way, let's bring you some real food. How about a Twinkie that's lasted 40 years? <laughs> we'll be talking about that just right after the break. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, when you think about it, uh, it's, it's too easy, I think, to just be a consumer without spending much energy thinking about it. If we want to make sure that we are not bait and switched, then you have to be informed. And by the way, that's true with your presidential election, and it's true with the, the food you're buying at the store as well. It's when, you, when, when we get into the, the details behind the scenes and some of the work uh, that Larry Olmsted was doing, it's crazy. Only 2% of the fish that is brought into this country is, is ever inspected, which is crazy, isn't it? 2% is inspected, but 91% of the fish we consume in the United States is brought in from out of the country. So you may not have a clue what you're getting, and yet, in, even in 1981, there was a story about um, a mass food poisoning in Spain where 800 people died because of toxic uh, oil, olive oil. Some other chemicals were put in the olive oil to cut the oil and uh, to make it, um, you know, make it so that they could make more money on it. 800 people died because of it. Now, you're not going to go die, but the bait and switch, it's a very real, very uh, real marketing ploy, and it it may be happening, happening in the elections as well. Bait and switch is the action, generally illegal, of advertising goods that are an apparent bargain with the intention of substituting inferior or more expensive goods. They get you in cheap and they sell you really expensive, or they get you in Expensive, you thought, really high quality for a deal, and you end up getting tilapia. You thought it was red snapper, and you get tilapia. Anyway, uh, be careful. Buyer beware, right? Caveat emptor. You, you've got to watch out for yourself, and uh, at this point, too, watch out for your family. Watch out for what's healthiest. Also, go find the, the stores and ask the questions. If you're getting sushi, talk to the people there. Where do they get their fish? And and make sure you know exactly what fish is being put on it, even if it's advertised as as salmon or white salmon or white tuna. I mean. If it's being advertised that way, make sure that's what it is. And when you find a really good restaurant, start telling people about it. So those that have integrity uh, get to benefit from it. Now, that's one problem we have. Another problem we have, though, which probably isn't a problem, it's, it's quite honestly a blessing. We've manufactured something. You may have remember we, we did a story about a ball of butter that was about 2,000 years old that they found. Dated back to the time of Jesus. Back to the time of Jesus. A, a big butter ball. A big – in the bogs, it was covered in mud, but it was a huge wad of butter. Lasted 2,000 years. Still, I guess, palatable or usable. Ugh. But there's something else that is in the running for the Butterball. It's now lasted 40 years. It started as a chemistry experiment, and it now sits under glass in Maine at a school. And it, it's simply a Twinkie.
1: It doesn't kill you, makes you Stand a,
0: a 40-year-old Twinkie. Still doing great. Not moldy, not gross. Probably has that filling inside that you could just, you know, stick your finger in there like a little kid. Roger Bonatti was teaching a lesson 40 years ago to his high school chemistry class when he put the Twinkie on the shelf as a little experiment. And they tried to see how long it would last. And by golly, it lasted 40 years. So there's no uh, that that is that's the food right there that keeps giving. You know, that you know that's legit. Anyway, that's America for you right there. We created the Twinkie that lasts forever. We'll take a break, we'll be back next hour. More ideas, more tools. Right here on BYU Radio. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show.
1: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
0: If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. Your guide on the side. I would suggest you forge more character. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr.
1: Matt Townsend.
0: Welcome back, friends. McKenna Baus joins us uh, to, again, tweak our minds a bit. Hey.
1: How are you? Doing well. Good to
0: have you. Yeah, it's our, nice to you. Our top-notch producer and social media guru. Oh,
1: well. I think you do me more credit than I deserve.
0: No, excellent to have you. Uh, Good to have you here. Talk about – you were going to bring up this weird idea about languages dying.
1: Yeah. So a lot of times when we think of dead languages, we think of kids sitting in class (laughs) studying Latin. I love –
0: that was my favorite subject.
1: You are one of the rare few.
0: I'm fluent in a dead language.
1: Well, there you go. And the thing is now more and more people um, are going to be able to say that as well. Right. Right now, um, there's predictions by scientists that 90 percent of all of the world's languages will have died out by the end of this century alone.
0: 90 percent?
1: 90 percent. What? Yeah. We're That's looking crazy. at mass extinction when it comes to language right Why? Now. Just
0: because we're all moving toward a unified one or two or five languages?
1: Yeah. So right now, there's approximately 7,000 languages wow. that we're aware of. On Earth, and about the top 100 are the only ones that are really widely spoken. And even within that, you have more and more that are becoming less and less used, mm. that are dying off as we sort of center around what are called these metropolitan languages—the big names, yeah. you know, that we all are familiar with,
0: like English,
1: English maybe Spanish, Spanish. Mandarin Chinese. Um,
0: Although kids aren't even speaking English anymore. They're just sending emojis over their phones. Yeah. Well, emojish is another language. Oh, definitely. So that is sad because you lose your language. Mm -hmm. You lose your culture.
1: Yeah. And so that's one of the big concerns that they have is that these languages are dying out faster than we can record them. Oh, no. And so you're losing the record of cultures entirely You're losing all of the knowledge that those cultures had, a lot of it in terms of the plants and animals and their environment of where it's from. And so you lose medical information that we could use that has to be rediscovered. You're losing, um, I mean, just people's ability to communicate one with each other to understand how these people thought. And the thing is, is you have a lot of people now who are on Earth and they – are the only ones who can speak their mother language now. And so they can't even talk to anybody yeah. in the language that they grew up with.
0: And I mean, I guess you could archive your language, but then it would still only be known by one professor at some yeah, it's, university.
1: It's still the thing is, though, is that's just such an undertaking Sad. that a lot of these people, they're out in more remote areas and they're harder to reach. Well, and
0: is, I guess is that just because the markets demand that you speak one of these top 10 languages?
1: Um That's you know part of it. One of the most interesting reasons that these are dying out is actually because of climate change, really? yeah, um, a lot of these you know languages that are dying out are in these uh, ecologically threatened areas, and as seawater levels rise, they ha- these people have to move inland, they integrate more with mm. other communities, and all of a sudden their language starts dying out. Mm. and so you have the environment. Changing. Changing our language. You're
0: listening to the best of the Matt Townsend show. And the culture. Yep. Yeah. And taking away, the sad thing is taking away concepts that we don't even have. I, I speak Spanish, and there's certain ways to talk about love and boyfriend and girlfriend that are so different in Spanish than they are in English. There's We have a word like love, mm-hmm. but you can love a burrito and you can love your wife. It's not
1: the and same. And we don't thing.
0: differentiate. <laughs> You know, isn't it sad? We don't even know what we're losing.
1: Yeah, and that's, you know, one of the things is it's going to be gone before we realize that unless we really start fighting to save these languages in any way that we can.
0: But now we but we've got other we've got other words now that are so wonderful like square up.
1: I don't even know if I know what
0: that That means. just means get ready to fight me. Oh, okay. My son says it to me every morning, "Square up, dad." I'm like, "You want me to punch you?" But he just – it's just – I don't know what it is. It's just being – an sounded Irish. Square up, man. You want me to punch you? You want me to punch you in the face? Yeah, no. That's sad. Mm-hmm. So any way to fix this? Change global warming apparently.
1: Change global warming um, and really just encouraging communities um, to speak their indigenous languages as well. A lot of the effects that we're seeing now are also caused by – you know, decades and centuries before this yeah. of oppression of um, indigenous people trying to force assimilation mm-hmm. of different cultures. Uh, that's a big problem that is being faced with the um, First Nations people in Canada. Uh For years, they had forced education things that they were – these kids weren't allowed to speak their indigenous languages and now nobody
0: can. Yeah, and and our intolerance to – everybody has to speak English. But now we have refugees coming, immigrants coming in and it might – we might lose a lot if we don't allow them to at least maintain their languages. Yeah,
1: we definitely – we just need to do everything we can to celebrate linguistic diversity. Man,
0: McKenna, great insight. Thanks for uh, that. I mean really, folks, did you even think of that? Powerful. What we lose when we, I mean, 7,000 languages, we could lose 90% of them. Crazy. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Boy, what would the world be like if we could all respect the human dignity in our fellow man? What would it be like if I could actually see the fact that uh, you're more than a male or a female, you're more than a doctor or, you know, a teacher? What if I could see beyond that beyond the color beyond what would it what would happen to us? How would I treat you differently if I actually could see that deeper, more powerful person in you c s Lewis had a great uh, th- uh, thought uh, that i 'll kind of paraphrase i don 't I probably won 't do it justice, but if we could just see the deity, the goodness inside of the person we sit next to yeah he he inferred that we'd we'd have a, a desire to fall on our knees to worship them if we could actually get to the goodness that is inside of every one of us. And then, um we, you know, we hear in our political talk, we hear in just all of the legal issues that are going on around the world and the country. We hear in in uh, you know, every argument about um, class issues, class warfare, cultural issues diversity issues male female issues just a lack of appreciation and of the seeing the divine and so how are you doing with that as you're driving to work as you're taking care of your family is there something you can do today uniquely you that might help you and me I'll do it for myself pick up a game pick up our game when it comes to respecting the human dignity of others and is there also a way that we could maybe turn down giving too much power, too much uh, homage and respect to somebody simply because they have material things or they have a, a really powerful talent that uh, is so apparent and obvious? Is there a way that we could start to pay more attention to the things that we don't pay attention to? One of my favorite quotes uh, is says, it's not the bars that hold the tiger in. It's the space between the bars that hold the tiger in. It's not the notes that makes the music. It's the space between the notes that makes the music. So the same thing is true when we think about uh, trying to show respect to one another. We have, ma- we have material things. That would be the bars. And then we have the spiritual things, the, the space between the bars. We have the notes, the material things, and we have the space between the notes. And really, it's, it's the spiritual human dignity that we all need to remember. And again, we don't have to dichotomize everything. So it's not animals or humans, but it's both, right? You can respect and love your animals, and you can respect and love the dignity of a human. So what would happen if, if we could change? And what's the one thing you could do today to become that change? Just think about it. But uh, where could you show more dignity? Could you show it more as a as a parent to protect the dignity of your child? How about to protect the dignity of your parents your seniors that you might be taking care of? How about to protect the dignity of the people in your community? Think it over and let's see if we can not elevate our lives by just simply focusing a little bit more on the things we don't necessarily see. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We've had a couple uh, discussions about poverty. We talked about um, how our brains, when you are poor, it creates stress and stress then has you generally working out of a part of your brain called the amygdala, the fight or flight part of your brain, which isn't necessarily your highest reasoning. It's not your best executive kind of functioning brain. It's just survival brain. And when we're in the survival brain, we don't always make the best decisions. We don't always think big picture. We don't always solve the problems, and and they tend to stick around. So the same is true when we think about the war on poverty. Maybe what we're doing is we're approaching it from our more reactive tendencies, our more reactive feelings. One of the things I love about um, the the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the the LDS church that, um, you know, is the The sponsor really in the end of this show because of Brigham Young University is they're really amazing as a church at getting people off of welfare and a job and getting them back into the world. And they have they they have your church leader will come, your religious leader will come and meet with you, assess and find out why you are struggling in poverty the church will even help to some degree to get you back on your feet. We have jobs programs. We, have, um, we, we just have a lot of ways to help people back on their feet. But the idea is at some point you want to be self-reliant. And I believe in every single human being in every heart is a desire, a drive to be self-reliant, to be able to make it. On their own. But then if we're stuck in poverty and we're not making the best decisions and we're caught up in that reactive fight or flight brain, we we start spinning and we need somebody, something that can help maybe hold on to us and stop us from spinning, get us in a place where we can start succeeding. And once we start getting traction, then we can start making better decisions, making better turns. It's like when your wheels are stuck in the snow and you're spinning, until you get the traction, more acceleration doesn't get you out necessarily. It just gets you deeper in the hole. So we need to get the people that are struggling in poverty some traction, and we need to get them some guidance, some a guide literally on their side that can get them into a job and, and start giving them – and we always think, let's train them first. Let's give them the skills. Okay, but again, skills without a job isn't going to help you. If I have all the skills in the world and I'm, I'm in North Dakota and there's not a job for me in North Dakota, then my skills won't help me. If I have daycare and I'm in Oklahoma but I don't have a job, the daycare is not going to help me. Well, yeah, but that will help you go get a job. Well, if there's jobs. We've got to work on, on some of the other solutions. And so think about you. How are you helping it? How are you handling it? Are you Are you involved in helping the people around you to get, uh, get a leg up and to get some strength? Are you talking to your politicians about it? Do you have some of the just typical mindsets or biases that we might have that those that are on the welfare rolls, they just don't – they're just lazy? If you believe that – you don't know enough people on welfare. Well, they're just all drug addicted. Not true. Not true. You got to get to know these people. You got to walk a little bit in their shoes and change your way of thinking. Because when we change our way of thinking, then we wouldn't vote for a politician that's going to just keep enabling people to stay poor. That's going to keep pushing ideas and policies that don't solve or, or end um, some of these these problems. We've been at it for 60 years and $22 trillion, and it's still beating us down. Just a little advice from uh, Dr. Matt. Our goal, again, is help us all live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend show, uh, show. How do you raise a child in the world today where there's so much violence and we hear about it? We, we may even know that we are safer because the numbers say that we're less likely to be maybe harmed, um, depending on the community you live in. But we hear about terror attacks and school shootings and other violent acts nearly weekly. What's the best way to approach your children, and how is this violence actually affecting them? Here to discuss this very important topic is the director of the Begin Center for Violence Prevention Research and Education, Dr. Dan Flannery. Dr. Flannery, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Good morning. Sounds like you've been doing some great work there at Case Western Reserve University on this on this subject. What? Just fill us in. It's are we are our children seeing more? violence today than we did as kids?
2: Well, I do think that um, with the advent of social media over the last five to ten years, you know, our children are being exposed to more things um, on a daily basis than we used to be, even if it's um, sort of what they see on television. You know, for us, it used to be shows like Combat and, um, you know, you had three or five channels. Right. Um, You know, now they're on their uh, phones uh, on the Internet uh, watching not only you know, sort of regular mainstream television, but cable, et cetera. So just the level of the exposure to different things, not only in their immediate environments, but, you know, certainly things that are going on around the world, uh, that exposure these days I think is much more immediate, much more intense, and sort of much more pervasive than what we grew up with.
0: And, again, its uh, I've had my own kids ask questions like, so is this ever going to happen here, Dad? I mean, I, I was worried about this. I remember when Elizabeth Smart was kidnapped and my children, because we live in Salt Lake where that took place, it became such a scary thing for them. How do we do – we, do we protect them? I mean, or is this just a part of life?
2: Well, there's a balance there, right? I mean, you want um, you want to reassure your children, especially when they're younger, um, that you're doing everything that you can, and the other adults in their lives, their teachers and police officers and others, are there to, you know, make things safe for them and to make sure that they're okay, but that, you know, bad things do sometimes happen in the world. And it's, uh, it's tough when things are happening more uh, seemingly at random and sort of more... Uh, everywhere, you know, things can occur in a shopping mall or in a school or in an airport. So there is this balance between, you know, reassuring them and also saying, hey, you know, we also need to be vigilant and aware of what's going on around us. But you know there are simple things you can do. There's no rule that says your child needs to sit and watch the daily you know, the <laughs> evening news every night. Right. And and especially if they're uh, upset by that or disturbed by that or showing you know that it makes them anxious or um, is sort of depressing, you know, then then you can monitor those things for your children and and put some limits on those exposures.
0: Talk to us about what it what violence and and their a child's view of. Uh, of violence, what does it do to their mental health? How does it actually impact them?
2: Well, there's, there we do have evidence that, you know, children that are exposed to violence over a longer period of time, you know, even, even in the past year, um, as witness or as victims, you know, those kids do report uh, more significant symptoms of things like uh, anxiety and depression or high levels of anger, you know, generally around their mental health. So, We used to think that it was really only the sort of most serious incidents or the most um, significant forms of victimization that were a problem. But what we're really seeing is that when you combine sort of all of this stuff on a daily basis that they're exposed to, some kids are more vulnerable than others, and this can kind of accumulate over time. So we see really elevated levels of anger, for example, among kids that say that they're you know being bullied regularly or kids that say that um you know in their neighborhoods and in their schools they see a lot of uh violence even if they're not directly victimized themselves so from a mental health perspective you have to start wondering about or at least being concerned about and being aware of the potential cumulative effects of these on on their mental health and their behavior and we're learning more and more about brain development for example and the way that these sorts of chronic exposures and victimizations can impact the sort of neurochemistry and um, functioning of the brain. Uh, So that's more of a concern for us, too.
0: As they're they're experiencing it, you're saying their anger goes up. Um, Do they tend to act out more? Do they tend to act out more violently because they've experienced violence?
2: Well, not everybody does, but that's certainly uh, a risk factor, right, for kids that are vulnerable and have other concerns going on. So It's not as if every child who's exposed to these things and watches a lot of violence in the media is going to go out and act on those feelings. Uh, But there is some evidence that when you combine, you know, this sort of stuff with other kinds of risk factors and that anger gets thrown in there, that over time, if somebody's exposed to a lot of violence or victimized by a lot of violence, those two things do increase the risk that a young person will actually go out and, and act
0: aggressively or violently
2: towards someone else.
0: Hmm. It's almost like they're, they're learning that violence is it's just a way of getting what you want, or it, it's just another way.
2: Well, there, there's certainly that, and there's certainly that, you know, violence is just uh, aggressive and violent behavior is just sort of a part of daily normal life, and uh, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, it's either a, a way to cope, it's a way to get along, everybody does it, um, you know, you sort of lose that sense of empathy when someone is hurt or needs to be helped. So we see some of that evidence that kids that grow up, particularly in violent neighborhoods, if you will, that that's just sort of normal for them. Mm. That's, they're kind of desensitized to the whole thing and that violence is just a part of their daily lives. So that, you know, you become concerned over time again that as they grow up to be young adults and adults in our community, Do they have that sort of same feeling that's just sort of been socialized over many, many years Mm -hmm. for
0: them? I just read a study about police officers somewhere that I think it's like one in four police officers suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. Sure. And it, it makes sense. They're around violence all the time.
2: That's right. It's the same sort of thing. And when we do training with police officers, which we do around the country, we talk about their own, you know, potential for traumatic stress symptoms and the things that they're exposed to every day, just like the people, the young people and the adults that they interact with every day. So there is this sort of numbing, kind of psychic numbing that can occur uh, that's sort of, again, uh, this is just what happens every day, uh, along with the sort of automatic reactions to these things that, uh, you know, you can kind of get into when this is what you see every day. So it it affects not only our young people, but yeah, as as you say, our first first responders and as we say about our police officers, they're now our kind of first social responders because they're the ones who are on the front lines sort of recognizing some of these things in people and when somebody really needs help, you know they're often the ones who can can make that recommendation for people to get the help they need.
0: We hear a lot lately too about um, suicide rates going up in teens is is do you think is there any correlation to hurting themselves to harming themselves? Um, because of just more violence, more, I guess, more of a, a desensitization to violence?
2: I'm not sure that young people are hurting themselves because they're desensitized to violence. I think there is some evidence that really young children, you know, five, six, seven, and eight, don't really have that understanding of the finality of death. And, you know, hurting themselves has a, you know... There's a finality to that, yeah. and I think there's some evidence that very young children sort of cognitively, or intellectually don't really get that. Well, among adolescents, it really is a combination of sort of their mental health generally. Um, if they're experiencing a particular crisis, you know, a breakup or something, some kids report, you know, being bullied and being victimized. It's really a constellation of factors that kind of lead someone to that point. Um, of taking that significant act. So I, I'm not, sh- you know, again, it's where you throw it in the pot mm-hmm. as one of many things that are going on. And it's it's like that little kid who's building uh, a tower of blocks with those wooden blocks. You know, some kids can build a really tall tower before it topples over. And some kids, you know, two or three blocks in, that tower topples over. So some kids can handle a lot of things and are fairly resilient. And other kids, uh, it doesn't take much to sort of, Make them feel like they, you know, they don't have another way out. Right. And, uh,
0: they have trouble coping with things. So, but, but I guess it, I guess the the main point too is just to remember it's impacting, right? However, whether little drips that eventually cause explosions, for many of these kids, there is a there's a correlation to some to some mental health issues, more anxiety, maybe more depression, because of uh, either I guess in you know. Uh, living violence in their lives, or just media watching of violence.
2: Yeah, I think that's a that's a good message, is that um, it matters. <laughs> you know, this right. this sort of stuff can be a factor, and it's not no big deal. It, just because it's different now than it was ten or twenty years ago, I think we can't take the attitude of "you just got to figure it out and deal with it" because that's just the world we live in these days. That's certainly a reality for us as parents and caregivers and, you know, people in the helping professions that you got to kind of figure that out. But the, the challenge is there's no sort of checklist or profile or um, set of things going on that you can draw that sort of straight solid arrow to if this is what's happening for a young mm. person, this is what the outcome is going to be. So I do think it's just important to say, hey, look, when, with this sort of thing going on, whether it's the day-to-day stuff that our kids are exposed to or the things that are now seemingly going on around our country and around the world all the time, that kids are exposed to this. They need to process it. They need to understand it. They need to continue to feel safe. We need to balance that you know, perception versus reality, as you mentioned at the beginning, we can throw out the numbers and say, you know, your risk of being a victim of violence is still pretty low, historically, but that doesn't um, afford you the escape from the notion that you you don't feel very safe when something happens in your own community or at a school in your city or uh, to someone you know.
0: Yeah, and you need and you need to jump on it. It seems like to. To make sure if something has happened that you 're also paying even extra attention after the fact as well uh, we 're speaking with Dr. Daniel Flannery. Daniel is the director of the Bagan Center for Violence, Prevention, Research, and Education at uh, the Case Western University or Case Western Reserve University. We uh, will return to the conversation in just a minute when we come back we 'll be talking about the impact of media and the, the exposure to media along with just um, what else we can do as parents to make sure we are safeguarding our children, making sure that they are safe and that they have a a fair shot as they deal with what seems like a more violent world that they're uh, coming up in. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we are talking about how witnessing violence in its many forms, uh, you know, live and in person or on television, on the Internet, through social media, through news outlets, through video games, how it is impacting your children's mental health, folks. And it's, it's not doing a lot of good. Joining us is Dr. Daniel Flannery. He's the director of the Bagan, uh Center for Violence Prevention Research and Education at uh, Case Western Reserve University, and we're honored to have you. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Flannery. No problem. This uh, the 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 exposure to violence. It seems to be going up more. Again, the world we keep hearing. Uh, not the world, but the the United States is supposedly safer. Violent crimes down in a lot of places, still up, I guess, in some big cities. But we ought to be feeling a little safer. And yet our children, if they're seeing more violence through the media exposure, they must be thinking the world's falling around them.
2: Yeah, again, you got to put this in a little bit of historical context that, you know, even 20 years ago, it was difficult for us to really hear about things going on in other parts of the Country let alone other parts of the world, you know, we had to wait to the the newspaper to come out the next morning And that's your exposure to it. You know, you could sort of limit your child's exposure to the information um, You know by monitoring sort of again, they're watching the evening news or they went to bed before the news or they didn't read the paper Um, So they weren't exposed to as much that was going on and even when they were it was rather limited but you know nowadays they're on social media nearly 24 hours a day and multiple forms of media 24 hours a day whether they're on their phones while they're watching netflix or they're you know have the tv on while they're on the internet while they're on their phone yeah you know so these are things that are flashing up all the time you know look at your own phone you know breaking news it's it seems to be relatively constant and it's there thrown in front of us over and over again so As adults, you know, we have some capacity to kind of filter it out. We have some capacity to kind of rationalize it or put it aside. There's certainly a natural instinct to want to know why something happened or why someone did something in some of these sort of horrible shootings. But it also used to be a little bit easier to say, hey, that's over there, (laughs) that's them, Mm -hmm. you know, that's not us, it's not going to happen to us or to people that I know. And the more that that does occur you know, where something happens at a shopping mall or a movie theater or at the school down the street, uh, you know, the more anxious and concerned you become, both as a parent and as a young person who really doesn't have the capacity to process that information as well, to filter it out, to really understand the difference between fantasy and reality, you know, what they may be watching on on a show. So for us, it was sort of Miami Vice, you know, they're... People. Mm-hmm. There were explosions all the time and gun battles, et cetera, and you never really saw the consequences of any of that. Right um, Now you see everything. Yeah, and, and <laughs> so in, in fact, are, if you
0: really you know, are looking for it, you can go see everything. Sure, on the Internet yeah. especially.
2: So again, there's just that difference, and um, you know, we have a responsibility as parents to do what we can to kind of monitor what our children are doing. And that doesn't necessarily mean they shouldn't have a cell phone but you certainly have the right to say, look, I, you know, this is a phone that I pay for. (laughs) This is a computer that is in our house. You're going to be on the computer downstairs in the kitchen, you know, when I can be there and kind of looking over your shoulder if I need to, or I'm going to take your phone whenever I feel like it and I'm going to get to see what's on there. So kids are pretty sophisticated about what they search for and trying to now delete their histories and, uh, what are this, you know, Snapchats and Instagrams right. things that go away very quickly. So, um, you know, it's more and more challenging to try to do that. But um, I think there are we can do some of those things uh, in terms of monitoring what our kids are doing and what we allow them access to.
0: And it's more it seems more and more necessary. I mean, it's interesting to note that some of the the kind of the mass shootings of late, uh, you know, almost every other one is is perpetuated by a young adult, uh, a young adult you know, a, a 20, early 20-something-year-old or even younger, and and it makes you wonder if they, you know, developmentally just never kind of got through the, the violence they experienced in their own life.
2: Yeah, there's, uh, again, there's so many things that go into those incidents and the motivations of those perpetrators.
0: And uh, mental health issues to begin with. Mental
2: health issues. Sort of the reaction seems to be, well, you know, if somebody goes and does that, then they must have a mental health issue. Well, that's generally true, but uh, a lot of perpetrators, when you take all of these incidents collectively over the last 10 or 20 years, very few of them had clear sort of recognizable mental illness hmm. prior to instigating the act. So again, there's, that's a, a challenge where it'd be easy and, and more comforting perhaps to say, well, all of these folks are mentally ill if we just deal with the mental illness right. part of it. Or the gun part of it, it, right. Or the gun part of it. It's just not that simple, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, we, we also need to just deal with the fact that we have violence that our kids can access. Does can And I guess it depends probably on age developmentally, but do do children differentiate between news that they hear about in Syria that's violent versus a video game they see their brother playing?
2: Well, that's a good question, and, and you're exactly right. It does depend a bit developmentally on their ability to sort of understand the differences. Um, again, what's what's a game and versus, you know, what's real? Um, and kids are better at that as they get older, uh, but those lines do get blurred. You know, if you're exposed to this over and over and over again, um, it's not as easy to differentiate the sort of cumulative effect of those things um, combined. But, you know, the good news is, even with adolescents who tend to want to spend more time with their friends and not be around their parents as much, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's some evidence that says, hey, if parents just are clear with their kids you know, about what they expect from them, those kids do better. You know, so parents who say, this is not okay, or I don't want you doing this, or yeah, yeah. this is the time that I want you to be at home, doesn't mean their kids are going to do that all the time. But there's evidence to suggest that you know, in some of the longitudinal studies we've done with kids over time, that if their parents just told them what they expected of them, those kids did better.
0: That's and, – and, and yeah, laying down the expectation right. and then having conversations around it, um, I guess too, and having time, like being with our kids where we can actually see them using their devices, right. catch them maybe looking at something that we can then talk about um, and, and not immediately just – being punitive, but being opening up discussions.
2: Kids, right. That's right. Being a- able to, uh, it's not even just about being with them necessarily. Yeah. It is about being available to them and having these discussions and, and having these conversations about, you know, with them to say, hey, what are you doing? What's, what's this about? Or, you know, I have older adolescents and young adults in my home as well. And it's sort of the joke is, you know, if you want them to come to the dinner table, you got to text them.
0: <laughs> because,
2: you know they don't right. they don't want to talk on the phone you can 't call them you know your kids don 't respond to a phone call. they respond to a text, and so there's that adjustment that we have to make as parents to say this is what this is the age that they 're growing up in, and this is how they communicate, but we kind of have to force the issue and say look we 're going to sit down and eat dinner together, and we're actually going to talk to each other, and you 're not going to be on your phone the whole time yeah, <laughs> you know that 's hard for some kids to do right now is to put their phone down and turn it off." Uh, But that's something we can do as parents and say, look, we expect this hour or half hour or, you know, three times a week or whatever. We're actually going to talk to each other and be available to see what's going on in your day and how you're doing.
0: Because they're they're also going to have to do that at work. Right.
2: I just had this conversation (laughs) with my son who's in law school and said, you know, you're really going to have to, you know, be able to converse with people when you interview with folks and talk to them and not just respond in an email, you know, to a, a request to speak with them. So that's exactly right. They don't they don't have any idea. They kind of look at you like, what are you talking about?
0: That's <laughs> um, it's such a different age. I mean, again, we grew up kind of in an era when you didn't have the luxury of being entertained every second. The entertainment right. had to come from your head or yep. a stick you found on the ground. That's right. Hey, a stick. That's right. Um, and, and yeah, what's go outside and play in the dirt, yeah, I mean, and now just the apps, just the apps alone, the mere fact that Pokemon Go could take over the world as it as it seemingly has that's mm-hmm. that's in a in a week in a month, really now it's created whatever a nine billion dollar value yeah, increase and. Uh...
2: I mean, my fourteen-year-old daughter is just as content to sit for hours and watch Netflix as right. uh, you know. I have to, you know, sort of say to her, "Get up and go do something," or "Let's go outside and play catch or something," mm-hmm. you know, to get them. Uh, whereas for us, we just did that. That's what we did. We were out
0: until the sun went down and then came back home. Is 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 the technology itself making us more resilient to? uh to going like to to being able to heal through the violence that we're experiencing in life or is it making it harder for us cuz we, people well, could certainly. experience violence back in the day does technology cuz nowadays it seems like there's all, there's other information there's better ways to research and know stuff there's stuff online to get help right right you know more
2: information isn't always better better right and, and it's not always accurate and the right information yeah you know so that's the that's the trick, yeah, there's more out there there's more available. you can sort of self diagnose your ailments better, you know by googling things and symptoms on the internet, but it doesn't mean that 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 you're in the best position to then go treat yourself too. you know sometimes you gotta go see the doctor yeah. and and get the real information and and the real diagnosis and the best treatment course, so you know certainly it's it's helpful in some ways, you know you need to fix a plumbing problem, you can go on youtube and watch a film and kind of do it yourself but um, you know there's also information overload and uh, having to sift through what's really kind of real um, and accurate versus what's out there um, as misinformation Mm -hmm. I think we just need to be again we need to be mindful of that we need to be careful about it and not just assume that it's all good
0: yeah they'll be fine kids will be kids they're they're resilient and they are but one thing I, I also just I picked up from your article um is the simple idea that if they've experienced being bullied, if they've experienced something traumatic, and, and if you're talking to them enough, you might be able to sense that, don't, don't minimize its long-term impact on them. Instead, get them help. Get them to somebody that can help them understand and process.
2: That's right. And, and the thing about all of that is that it's, everybody responds a bit differently. And just because they don't act out right away when something happens – doesn't necessarily mean that six months down the road or even a year down the road something else might happen to trigger you know some sort of anger or anxiety Mm -hmm. or what have you so you know kids could bottle things up for a while as a way to cope and then something happens uh, down the road and and it all kind of comes flooding back so you just sort of have to be vigilant yourself as their parent and caregiver and that's part of that being uh, sort of available and aware and not just blowing it off yourself as being no big deal they seem to be okay um, and and ask them. Mm-hmm. You know, I've I've asked my kids directly. What's going on? You know, how are you doing? It's, it seems different now. You're sleeping more, or your grades are falling off, or you know, what's going on with this at school? I heard about this thing, and let them. You know, they can tell you nothing. Yeah, their first response probably is going to be nothing. Nothing, no big deal. Right. But uh, you've at least opened the door.
0: That's right. And and the history of it will will eventually hopefully pay off. One way or another. Dr. Daniel Flannery, thank you so much for your great work. No problem. And thanks for being with us. Director of the Bagan Center for Violence Prevention Research and Education. You can go look up uh, bagan.case.edu to get more information about the work they are doing there um, on violence and children's mental health. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. And when we come back, we'll be talking about getting college ready. Is college uh, taking a big bite out of your children? Is it shortening their lifespan? Interesting news. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we are really fortunate to be able to have the opportunity for higher education and go to college, aren't we? But college life can be stressful and taxing. We actually have a lot of university students that work for us here at BYU Broadcasting. And while they're attending school, sometimes they are stressed out of their heads. One of those stress cases is our very own producer, Leanna Tan. And she has recently become convinced that college life is killing her. She's going to tell us some ways college could be expanding your mind while shortening your life.
4: opened my refrigerator, only to find it was practically empty. So the next thing I knew, I was boiling a partially opened box of lasagna I had gotten from an old roommate, and tearing it with my hands to make spaghetti. To make it less of a sad meal, I cracked open a can of corn as a side dish. Everything was fine and dandy, when suddenly, I sensed something wasn't quite right. And I was looking at the can, and sure enough, I was eating corn that expired over a year ago.
3: Let that be an object lesson in the dangers of
2: tampering with the laws of mother nature.
4: What did I do? Well, of course I proceeded to eat it. Why? Because I'm a college student. Yes, slaving away for that bachelor's degree has made me resort to expired corn and hand-torn lasagna. I could feel my life getting shorter by the mouthful. Me better, you me Ill, you me Finally put down the fork and realized, college is killing me. Literally. It's the beginning of August and the new school semester is starting. I began thinking of all those innocent freshmen that have no idea what they're getting themselves into and decided that it's my civic duty to put out a warning to anyone entering this infernal pit called higher education. As a heads up of what you're getting yourself into, here are five diseases that you're bound to contract from college life. Why Botulism. Healthwithfood.org says botulism is a rare but serious illness that can cause paralysis and even lead to death. May you just... Drop it's caused by bacteria, which may live in improperly canned or preserved food. Their spores produce toxins which, when eaten, can lead to severe poisoning even when consumed in tiny amounts. And let's be honest, we all know the average college student's diet consists of about 95% canned tuna. Bring on those toxic spores! Two. Hypothermia. According to the WebMD... Hypothermia is a potentially dangerous drop in body temperature, usually caused by prolonged exposure to cold temperatures, or by the extreme difficulty finding housing in that awkward week between when your housing contract ends from one semester and begins in the next semester, and you end up in that cold, hard street corner.
0: You're as cold as ice!
4: Postural kyphosis, also known as.
3: Hunchback these are crimes for which the world shows little
4: pity. With the weight of all our textbooks these days we'll all be walking at 90 degree angles. Fixhunchback.com says if a backpack is not fitted properly, all the weight falls on the person's neck and shoulders. Usually in order to compensate, the person starts bending forward at the hips or tries arching the back in order to maintain the balance. However, this may cause the spine to unnaturally compress the discs. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Oh, my back. Moreover, an overstuffed backpack also leads to back and neck pain, fatigue, headaches, osteoarthritis, and even slitted discs. Needless to say that in the long term it may also result in a hunchback. Oh. Separation anxiety disorder. Well, it came from the other. Day. <laughs> so much like a man I just- Wikipedia describes this as a psychological condition in which an individual experiences excessive anxiety regarding separation from home or from people to whom the individual has strong emotional attachment, a.k.a. every semester after you spend four months every day building undying bonds with your roommates and classmates, and then suddenly they're torn from you you. and move to the opposite side of campus or switch their major. have left of them is the faint glow of their instagram posts Don't let fetal growth retardation among all the late night cramming for exams roommate heart to hearts and midnight nightmares about not graduating college causes a lot of sleep deprivation And VeryWell.com says that sleep deprivation in pregnant women Can compromise the blood flow to the placenta Which may reduce the amount of growth hormone released Which may then lead to developmental or growth problems in our unborn children Seems like a long road to a slow and painful death I guess this means we'll all be anxious, hunchback, hypothermic, paralyzed people with tiny babies But at least we'll have a piece of paper with the university president's signature on it, right? <laughs> so, for all of you incoming freshmen ready to take on college, my biggest piece of advice for you is don't forget to kiss your mother goodbye. And if you're feeling sick at all, then don't Google your health concerns. Well, I'm Leanna Tan. And that's My Little Tangent.